This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Hello, and welcome to HR in Review. I'm Fayaz Khan, the new editor, and I hope you like the podcast's new format. I have some excellent guests today, and we're going to look into managing neurodiversity in the workplace. Like dyspraxia, dyslexia, autistic spectrum disorder, we need to shift that. We haven't found out quite how, but we'd like to start the conversation to get rid of those labels. We're also talking about how to curb imposter syndrome. You're constantly faking it, constantly just trying to pretend. And I think, why why can't we just be honest about it? Like, we don't always have all the answers. And actually, it's okay not to know. It's important to, to have doubt. And it's important to not be this arrogant person. Say everyone has it. And as a result, it's okay. But first, I spoke to Steve Butler, the chief executive of Panta Southall Aspire and the author of four books on diversity. His most recent is called Inclusive Culture, and it's all about how to create a diverse workspace, especially in sectors where there's no diversity to be had. I started by asking him how he got into one of the arguably least diverse sectors, finance. It was a bit of a shock when I got my level results and they they weren't so good. So um, my dad said, right, time time to go out and get a job. Uh, And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I found myself flicking through the paper you know, looking for looking for jobs. And, and the job that I got, which was, a, a, as I say, an office junior in a life assurance company in the Southampton office, was was kind of the first job I applied for. Wow. You got lucky then, did you? I did get, get very lucky, I guess. Or you could say not. I mean, I, I, went into, I went into an environment of people that were very much like me. You know, they were, they were white men. They were all kind of from a similar background. Very quickly, I moved into the sales team and my sales role was calling on financial advisors, telling them about the life insurance company's products and and the financial advisors were all a lot like me as well. Mm. So I I actually found it very easy. And I I look back at that period and say, well, was was that luck or or was that is that my privilege as a a white man entering the workplace in the 1980s? Actually, do you think that that would happen now? Do you think that you know that that progression within the workplace is is still there, even even for white men? I don't I don't think it is. I mean, we we recruit graduates into our business, and and they're doing the same task that I was doing at eighteen. So, you know, we now expect people to go and get a good quality degree from a good university, before they come into the workplace and and start doing, you know, what are mundane tasks sometimes, um, and because. Um, because there wasn't a lot of structure in the in the business at that time, I was able to progress quite quickly. You were talking about, you know, the fact that you need to hire graduates at the moment to do rather mundane tasks. And I wonder, um, why is it that they have to be so highly skilled? Because one of the things that you've talked about in some of your articles is that to improve diversity, you hire people who don't have the skills that you need. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a certain amount, and I guess a, a confession from me, but I, I hope it's similar for, for other people. You know, when you progress through your year, your career, you do things the way they've been done in the past without questioning them. And for me, there was a kind of a reflection point probably five years ago when I when I thought, well, actually, maybe this is I'm not doing things the right way, and there's there's other things 
that I could do differently. Uh, and kind of that reflection led me to well, actually, why, why are we recruiting graduates from a select group of universities? Why aren't we looking at a broader set of graduates? Why do we even need graduates? You know, if they need maths, maybe they only need A-level maths and we should recruit at that level. And why are we asking for five years experience for some roles when effectively it's a client relationship role and it's about how you engage with people? So, you know, I guess over the last five years, I, I've, I now tend to look at uh a role and say, well, what skills am I looking for? Not what have I had, who have I had in the role in the past, or what does the job description say that's it's a legacy from, from the past. And then what's that done for your workplace? Has that changed anything? <laughs> yeah, I think that means, you know, and I think you know, my business is 150 people now. Um, and I think, you know, it's very easy, as I have done in the past, for line managers, when someone resigns to go and recruit someone, just like who was in the role before and, and forcing them to kind of look at the role and say, does it need to be full time? Um, do they need to have a degree? Do they need five years experience? It suddenly opens up a much wider talent pool if you're not asking these for these specific requirements. And I think if you then have a, a structured interview process where you're asking the the interviewees, the same set of questions, the same tests, allows you to take a very objective view rather than your kind of personal bias is creeping into the uh, interview process so you know what that's resulted is um you know over time we are gradually you know becoming a more diverse business there are obviously pros to to using the interview model that you suggested but you know a lot of people that i speak to tend to say that there's no room for nuance in that model so you know if someone says something that's slightly off piste and you know maybe then you're diverse or, or they've got experience that's slightly um, not within the model then you can't account for that because it's a very structured process how do you counterbalance that follow us on twitter at hr review or join us on linkedin and facebook so I think that comes down to the training of the of the managers you know and if you look specifically at neurodiverse talent uh, individuals coming to the business you know sometimes you ask a straight question and and but you're asking for a slightly nuanced answer as, as you suggested and they're kind of not reading between the lines so they kind of answer the question but you know but don't follow on with the rest so I think it's about training your managers to then ask follow-up questions to pull out that extra piece of information if if it's not coming through in the in the initial question and and the way that we've done that and and this is quite a, i think a, a fundamental way in which we've embedded our culture across our business so every month i bring them together in groups of seven eight or, or nine and, and we have a kind of what we call a, a manager network session where we um pick a management subject might be recruitment for example and we will look at it through a diversity inclusion lens we'll maybe watch a ted talk together um, we'll have conversations about experiences that we've had and then collectively discuss best practice so it gives the opportunity for the managers to kind of reflect on the way that they've done things in the past consider new ways of doing things but also means for me I'm starting to build consistency across the business as to the way that the managers react to different situations or, or in a recruitment process, the, the process that they follow. You're listening to HR in Review. 
So with regard to diversity in the workplace in, in general, I mean, what do you say to people who say, why not just hire people who are skilled at the role? Why do you have to think about making sure that there's a wide range of, you know, personalities and uh, races and um, di- neurodiversities within your team? Because I think we end up with a situation like we have in the investment and savings industry. So the investment and savings industry, you know, a piece of research a few years ago from Mercer's identified that, you know, there was a dominance of white, privately educated men from a select group of universities. And it was comp- the percentages were completely out of sync with society as a whole. And that presents a few risks. One is, as a business, you start have this group think this kind of collective thinking because there's no one else giving the different perspectives so it stifles innovation um, it creates kind of risks uh, within the business also any business should be a reflection of the clients that they serve well I love one of the meeting hacks that you have because you said that most of the areas that you work in and because of the the business that you work in people um, are mainly white men and they have this macho-ness about them. And that's what meetings used to be like in your offices before. However, yeah. you've started this well-being check-in where people have to talk about themselves for a minute and whether that's, you know, personal or whether that's work. And that kind of lowers the macho rating. You know, you said that was, oh, it was really good because it just meant that the, the meetings were less macho. But I thought, actually, it would be really good and an inclusive place for women then because um they, they're not then intimidated by by the men around them in what is a very male-oriented uh workspace yeah by starting a meeting by listening to what's going on in someone else's life you you immediately have uh, empathy with the perspectives that they're coming from so it's a great management tool it kind of takes sometimes it takes the conflict out of a meeting because you know that someone's got something going on in their life, which is kind of uh, impacting them. So I think from a pure management perspective, it's a, it's a really great tool. Um, from a, from a, you know, and as you say, from a, from a gender perspective, it kind of, um, rem, you know, sets the tone for the meeting in that, you know, we're, we're being considerate and, and we're kind of taking each other's consideration uh, but, but the other dynamic um, and the reason you know, that, that I first implemented this was actually a, an intergenerational issue um, because, you know, we've got four generations in the workplace, all with different perspectives on, on the world. Um, and I was finding kind of conflict happening between the different generations and um, having this kind of check in at the start of a meeting addressed some of that conflict. So, for example, you know, one of the early times I did it, a very senior manager kind of said, look, um, my mum's really ill. I had to race up to Liverpool at the weekend um, and move her into a care home. And uh, a, a, a much younger person in the meeting went, oh, I thought you were just skiving off on Friday afternoon. And that really annoyed me because you told me that I couldn't um, have some flexibility in, in the middle of the week. Um, so it, it completely kind of removed that tension between those those two individuals. I think what you're also saying is um, embedding empathy, because it sounds like when colleagues have empathy for each other, they're able to understand the decision making processes around the, the, everything, you know, around everything that's uh, being discussed in the workplace. And that's actually a, a very powerful tool. 
I think so, because what you're doing is you're creating a culture which is inclusive by, by its nature. And, and effectively, you're, you're, saying, you're hanging a sign outside the door saying, you know, we, anyone's welcome. There's no restrictions in this business because, you know, we all understand one another. Steve Butler there, author of Inclusive Culture, which is everything you need to know about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. If you have any comments on the HR and Review podcast, would like to suggest a topic or speaker, or provide other feedback, you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Next up, I spoke to Charlotte Valleur. She's the former chair of the UK Institute of Directors. Charlotte was diagnosed with autism while still in the role at the age of 51. She found she registered quite high on the spectrum, and instead of shying away from it, she used her position to talk openly about neurodiversity and was encouraged by the amount of response she got. Now, Charlotte has launched the UK arm of a global organisation called the Institute of Neurodiversity. Its aim is to create research to inform companies and governments on the benefits of having neurodiverse people in a workspace. What we were trying, what we are trying to do is to cover all the, everybody within our community, no matter what their abilities are. And we're trying to put services together that is mindful of both businesses, corporate members and the individual members where within the businesses, we can support the businesses to understand how to deal with their neurodivergent um, employees and also the allies, because there's many family members, for example, and friends and in businesses that want to help and that are themselves struggling with personal relationships, maybe that will also be part of, of what we bring together. I wanted to know more about the, the actual Institute of uh, Neurodiversity. Like how, how does a country get to starting one? How yeah. do you select people who are going to work in it? Where, where yeah. are your researchers based? I mean... I just want to know everything. If people want to start in a country, they will contact uh, the Global Peace, which is uh, based in Switzerland. Uh, I'm chairing the Global Peace and we have a group of people um, within that. We will then uh, look at the person, do due diligence, ask uh, for references from that person, ask them to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, for the things we're going to share with them. And then once all of that is in order, they will, they will sign up as a social franchisee of ION uh, Global. So we hold the, it's a, it's a bit like McDonald's, right? But, uh, but with not a not-for-profit in a not-for-profit um, situation where the main thing we are concerned with is we give the same services no matter where in the world we are and that we follow the same kind of operation manual everywhere. So that no matter where you meet iron, you will understand what it is. And it's the same in all the different countries, because each country, as you rightfully said, has different levels of awareness and acceptance. They have different cultures, different ways of doing things. So it might be that locally uh, we will tweak some of the services that we have. So we want to create awareness leading to acceptance. We want to collaborate with as many people as possible. We want to represent us and have a voice for us. We also want to celebrate us and everything we do in many different ways. Um, we want to make sure we are connected. We want to do the research. And with that comes um, a journal that uh, we will publish with Sage Publishing. 
and that's called the Neurodiversity Journal, which will have a piece of research and then it will have our lived experience around that research. Um, our research group is, is based both in, I mean, it basically brings in, in researchers from around the world and we set up, we're setting up an editorial board with researchers from around the world. And are they and all neurodiverse? It will be a mix, I was going to say, and with representation of neurodiverse individuals too and researchers too. Tweet at HR Review. And speaking specifically about businesses, what tends to happen is if you have a higher emotional intelligence and also a higher IQ, which I think a lot of what I would say functioning neurodiverse people tend to have, which is why we tend to be diagnosed later in life, because we're able to function due to having a high emotional IQ or function in a way that's slightly more assimilated to society. How how can businesses see those people and support them? Because they, they're least likely to ask for help if they need it. It's about guiding the businesses. If there isn't inclusion, as one of my strap lines here is diversity without inclusion is an illusion. You can't just hire us and not also understand what makes us the most productive. So we're going around it that way with businesses to get the best productivity out of, out of us. There are certain things that you need to listen to. So we help with questionnaires or with different ways that we can look ideally to universal tools where, for example, for interview, you would have a one-pager where anyone gets the ability to tick the boxes of how they would like to be accommodated, not just people that has disabilities or neurodiversity or whatever, but everybody gets the same sheet and can choose themselves how they would like. And I think the universal tools broadening it out so that what we do suits a bigger group of people, and there you can really use us as the guiding light. So we tend to have a broader sensitivity band. So, so my senses are very sensitive. So, for example, I smell things very intensely. It's like I feel like a dog sometimes, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. Well. But I can also smell that when people are ill, for example, they smell differently. And for me, it's so obvious. I thought everybody could. But yeah. everybody can't, I have realized, as I started talking about it. But I realized that there's a number of people who, who has that ability as well. And that is an ability, but it's not an ability if you are forced to sit and work in a room that smells of dirty socks, yeah. right? It just doesn't work for me. I simply cannot. All I can do is smell the smell yeah. that bothers me. Other people have the same with hearing. Uh, so I know many uh, people that are very hearing sensitive, which is great when they're in music, for example, or artists. But when they're in the general society, it's very hard. And most would like to have earphones on all the time mm. to protect themselves, right? Mm. From the onslaught, the hearing and noise onslaught. So if they would ask neuro neurodivergent employees, what would you like? What will make your day easier? They will find, if they then make the changes, they will find that all of their employees' productivity would increase. And this is what is not well understood yet. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, everything you said there, by the way, was me. So I have issues with my hearing. Like, you know, if I'm outdoors, I like to have my headphones in, but on silent because I just can't cope with certain sounds. Yeah. Um, things that touch me in a certain way, I just, I can't cope. You know, certain yeah. feelings, even, you know, even if you eat certain foods, I just 
can't go and and the yeah. other day my yeah. husband made some rice and I was walking down the stairs and thought I said oh you didn't put enough salt in that rice and he was like well how do you, you know yeah <laughs> you haven't tasted yeah. it and yeah. I just but it Trust wasn't me, I know yeah <laughs> I, but yeah. I, I think one of the things that that we should probably promote in your businesses is that actually employing people from various neurodiverse walks yeah. of life uh, is actually very beneficial for the business it's not just that you know catering to their needs would would make them more productive it will also help the company be productive as a That's whole right. and that and there isn't enough on that yet out there we need to get that awareness out i think business are waking up to it um, I mean, like Microsoft has a large neurodiversity uh, neuro group. I think it's two and a half thousand people now. And they listen to them. And when they say something, they implement it across for everybody. And they have experienced apparently increase in productivity for everybody. Because even though some people don't have the sensitivities, it's not as if their body doesn't have that ability. It does. It's just not as uh, sensitive. Mm. So, so therefore, they still feel they can they, they can smell the smells, they can hear the noises, they can have the wrong light, all of that, and sort of hold themselves in it. But it's still draining them to a degree, right? And why would us? It's just draining us a lot more yeah. because uh, because we have higher senses, right? Yeah, and actually, I think that does add to things like fatigue and stuff a bit Absolutely. earlier on in the day than, than other people would because you're just there's just a lot of stimulation constantly yeah and if we could reduce that stimulation all around everybody would feel better what can happen is that when you are a person who interrupts frequently or um can't tolerate noise or smells are very extreme just all of those things besides the fact that they're constantly affecting you it can also make you grumpy because you're it's just difficult to to cope and then then your colleagues don't understand that and then that just makes you seem like someone who's a difficult person where you're not really things around you are just not different neurotype yeah Yeah, so if you can say i'm i'm sorry i'm a neurotype in 11b7 (laughs) you know what i mean like that are different traits that are good and bad but even under the neurotype, neurotypical neurotype, there also are good and bad traits. One of the things about dyspraxia is people just think it's about coordination, but actually I it's feel- It's so much more than that. It's way more. And I feel like um, it, there are certain things that mimic autism. There are certain things that mimic yes. dyslexia. There's so much actually. And um, That's right. And it all kind of overlaps. And this is why I feel we are all on the same string. All of us are on the same string. Like neurotypicals on average has 15 autistic traits, for example. Mm. It could be any of the, right, on average 15, and we have on average 35. But but we are all, and that I wanted to show that on a one page, so somehow we put all these various positive and negative traits, and then take all the different neurotypes and what they have, and then you'll see the first bulk we all have. We are much more alike. Mm. And then there are some spikes out here, mm. with some of us having something that's specific. Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. My next guest is Philippa White, CEO of the International Exchange, or TAI. Philippa helps leaders think outside their own immediate experience by presenting them with global challenges such as lack of clean water in Malawi and getting them to come up with solutions to fix those problems. 
She also tries to promote sustainability and get CEOs and other individuals to see their own potential. Speaking to me from her home in Brazil, she told me the pandemic was an excellent way for people to reset and think about what really matters. When you're sort of stuck in that routine, it's hard to break out of that. We know that, right? Often you go on holiday. If you take a two-week holiday or three-week holiday, suddenly you get that clarity again because it's it's hard once you sort of get into that grinding routine of, you know, get up, have dinner, get the kids to school, go to work. So you break out of that, which is obviously what the pandemic did. So yes, I would say that people have more clarity. I would also say 100%, which is what we see with our work, people are now questioning what is important to them. The commute to work. So people found themselves kind of relooking, oh my God, I've just won myself sort of two hours or three hours of not commuting anymore. My God, I can't believe I was even doing that. You know, so questioning that, questioning, I can't believe I've been working 10, 12, 14 hours a day on this. And like, why am I doing that? And I think companies um, need to realize that. And I think they are, but also individuals are waking up and being like, I can't, I, you know, I, I need, there, there's more to life. Oh, but how would you say then that, HR leaders can take on board these things and ensure that people stay within their companies, but also give them the opportunities to grow. How can they do that? How can they make their employees know that those opportunities are available? I think it's looking for the opportunities that are available, um, as in growth opportunities are definitely out there. And I think that conversation, I would like to think that conversation in light of the pandemic is going to get better because we've realized that actually <laughs> we can work in a hybrid way and we can have, you know, Fridays at home or leave early and be able to, you know, be, be flexible in that way. So I think it's just thinking about what people need. Also, I think it's just having your finger on the pulse, talk to people, understand what, you know, how people are feeling. And if you do that, you actually very quickly understand how to respond. Would you say that that the onus of that is on the HR leader? Or do you think it's on the individual themselves, you know, the opportunity for growth, whether that that's uh, experiential learning or whether that's, you know, coaching or whatever? It's really, God, that's a really, really good question. I would say a bit of both. And I wouldn't even say just the HR leader. I think this also, I think what often and I mean, you know this better than me, but I would say that a good company, uh, the CEO works very, very closely with HR. And I feel there are many HR leaders and talent leaders that aren't empowered and they should be. If anything, the, the only thing that companies have are their people. <laughs> and the better that the people are, the better your company is going to be. And the more loved your people feel, the better your company is going to be. So you don't have a, a, a competitive and happy company, particularly now in this in this climate, um, unless your people feel cared for and supported and can grow. And that requires budget, that requires investment, time and money. And that isn't just the talent person, because if the talent person is searching out all of these opportunities and they're hitting their head against a brick wall, trying to sort of get it in, but the finance people and the CEO isn't really paying attention, then it's just, it's a losing battle, right? So I don't think it's just the talent person. I think it needs to be the CEO and uh, and therefore led, uh, you know, leading finance as well and sort of being a tight team and understanding that value. But I do think, you know, I think we do get a lot of people who come to us who are looking for growth opportunities. They see it as learning. They see it as growth. They seeing it as broadening horizons, um, again, breaking out of silos, uh, just being able to do more and be more. And that is coming from people. People are desperate for it. 
are there emotional barriers to this? Do people, is, is there anything stopping people emotionally, whether that's HR leaders or CEOs or the talent, from actually taking that step? Yeah. And what, what are they? <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. Uh, interestingly, I'm not good enough. Um, if it's a if it's something that a company, so we were we have individual offerings and we also have corporate offerings. So if the corporate offering is it sometimes offered as a pitch, so you know only six people will be able to go, or you know uh, you know a, a small number of people will be able to get involved, and so you need to apply. A lot of people won't even apply because they figure they wouldn't even get it. So one is those personal the barriers is I don't think I'll get it or I don't think I'll get accepted. The other one is I don't think I have anything to offer. So I don't think that I have. So in the way that we work, it's an experiential program. So it's um, it uses people's skills to be able to impact global challenges. And I say that it can be any seasoned professional, literally anyone from any level at all. And it's fascinating to me that I have CEOs. I also have, you know, people with three years of experience or whatever it is. I mean, it has nothing to do with um, uh, position or experience, like time experience in a profession. It's fascinating that there's those barriers of, I don't, I don't think I have anything to offer. I don't think I'm good enough. So that's fascinating. I think the other thing is time. I think a lot of people just feel that life is so busy that they just don't have time. You know, there are ways to be able to find the time. And I think it's an easy cop-out, actually, for people to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm just too busy. I agree. And actually, it's an investment in yourself. So really, what is yeah. stopping you? Uh, we used to do it, actually, through in-person experiences. And it would be, you know, 30 days, and they would be in Malawi or Ghana or, you know, South Africa or wherever, and they would have to use their uh, ingenuity and their knowledge to be able to solve a problem. Uh, now, in the face of the, pa- the pandemic, it's actually, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And we've actually now evolved to a way of working that actually now I don't think we're going to go back to where we were. It's, it's so much more effective. It's a six-week program designed to empower personal growth. And the way that it works is we get cross-disciplinary professionals to team up and work together. And we do it through this unique methodology, which is solving global challenges. And people deserve, you know, develop more empathy, flexibility, confidence, and a much better understanding of how the world works outside of their silos. Philippa White from Thai. Well, that's all we have time for today. But I want to say a huge thank you to my guests, Steve Butler, Charlotte Vella, and Philippa White. Next time, I'm asking, are HR teams looking after themselves enough? And we have some great guests to do that as well, including Sandra Porter, former Starbucks and O2 HR extraordinaire, and also author of the book, How to Be an HR Superstar. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. HRReview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HRReview or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.